The story of the Sikhs continues as we follow the fortunes of Guru Angad, the second leader of the growing Sikh community. We learn how Guru Angad continued his beloved master's mission and his choice to succeed him as the next guru of the Sikhs. This is co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong, welcoming you to join us as this fascinating journey continues. There was great consternation in Kadur, the town that was the seat of Guru Angad. The Guru had vanished. All the Sikhs were distraught. First, Guru Nanak, their beloved master, had left the world, and now his successor, Guru Angad, was missing too. They searched high and low, but alas, the Guru was nowhere to be found. Six months passed in this manner. The Sikhs were disconsolate. Pai Buddha had always been close to Guru Nanak, and he had been the one who had anointed Guru Angad on Guru Nanak's command. A small delegation of Sikhs, Pai Lalo, Pai Saddo, and Pai Ajitta, made their way to Pai Buddha's home to seek his guidance. There was no wiser or more blessed Sikh than Pai Buddha. Surely he would know what to do. Pai Buddha received the delegation and gravely heard their pleas. He promised to give them an answer the next day. That night and next morning, he chanted the verses of Guru Nanak and fixed his mind on the Guru. When the Sikhs returned eagerly the next morning, Pai Buddha spoke. I have had a vision, he said. I have seen the Guru. He is at the home of a woman named Nihali, not too far from here. Follow me, he said. And with the band of six in tow, he made his way to a modest house not too far from Kadur. They knocked on the door and Nihali appeared, looking somewhat nonplussed. When questioned about Guru Angad's whereabouts, she professed ignorance and shut the door. The Sikhs left, utterly dejected. Six months earlier, Nihali had been fashioning cakes of cow dung for fuel at her home when she saw Guru Angad approaching. She was ecstatic at the opportunity to serve the Guru and reverently asked him what she could do for him. Guru Angad, who still keenly felt the separation from Guru Nanak, was thinking of his master as he approached. His heart was heavy, and he was distraught. Yearning for solitude, he said that the eyes which had beheld Guru Nanak desired to see nothing more, and he then remained silent for some time. When he spoke again, he asked Nihali to let him have a room, where he might sit alone and meditate on God without any distraction or interruption. He instructed that the room be locked from the outside, ensuring that he not be disturbed. He required nothing to eat or drink, except a pot of milk daily, which Nihali would bring him faithfully. Nihali was delighted to be of service to the Guru, and she was careful not to let anyone know about his seclusion. Guru Angad immersed himself in profound meditation, his thoughts on his late master and the mysteries of the divine. After the delegation had left, Nihali hurried to the Guru's room and informed him of their visit. He at once ordered that they should be shown into his room. Guru Angad embraced by Buddha and spoke, this age marchaliye trig jeevan sansar taake pache jeevna jo sir sai na nive so sir dije dar 
नानक जिस पिंजर में बिरहा नहीं सो पिंजर ले जार Great love of mine before you I shall pass for life without you is a curse alas the head unbowed before the lord shall roll burst into flames o selfish body whole unfeeling of the yearnings of my soul the guru's mourning was over his six could clearly see that guru angad had the same radiance on his countenance the same manner and verily the same appearance as guru nanak with great joy they accompanied the guru back to kadur where he went back to ministering to his flock Guru Angad emerged from seclusion his followers flocked to his presence to see him and make offerings all that he received was sent to the langar or the free kitchen for the use of pilgrims and wayfarers there was continual preaching and singing as in Guru Nanak's time it was Guru Angad's daily practice to rise 3 hours before daybreak bathe in cold water and engage in meditation and introspection The Sikh would travel great distances to be blessed and he would tend to him with kindness. The Guru's wife Mata or Mother Kivi would preside over the langar and make sure that everyone was fed. The Guru would instruct the children of the community and take great delight in watching their sports. In the evening he would hold court and Balwand and Satta Two famous minstrels of the time would play their instruments and sing the compositions of Guru Nanak much to the delight of the congregants. Balwand and Satta continued to please the Guru's visitors with their songs and music, but on seeing his glory increase, they became envious and arrogant. They boasted that it was on the account of their music that the guru had become renowned. One day an elderly Sikh asked them to sing a hymn. Rudely they retorted, "Shall we sing hymns for peasants?" The guru on hearing this was not pleased, and when the minstrels came to sing at the evening gathering, he turned his back on them. They went around so as to catch his eye. but he avoided their salutation they asked what offense they had committed if you will not sing for a humble sick of mine you shall not sing for me either realizing their error they begged guru angad's pardon which of course he granted their pride however was not totally humbled they determined to sing in the future only if they received higher wages After a short time they told the guru that one of their daughters was to be married and asked for 500 rupees a princely sum to meet the expenses the guru commanded them to wait for 2 months and said he would settle their accounts at the yearly spring fair balwant spoke we cannot wait for so long we need the money at once if you have none borrow it then for we are your six and we are in need the guru replied that it was not a good thing to borrow and he asked them to be patient and have faith in god's bounty the bards turned insolent it is we who by singing your praises have made you famous if we stopped singing the six would never make any offerings to you therefore refuse not our request If you choose to not give us the money we need we will go to our homes and sing our hymns there
the matter stayed unresolved, and next morning they did not present themselves. The Guru sent for them, but they failed to answer his summons. He again sent a special messenger to tell them not to delay, but come to him at once. The more the Guru humbled himself, the prouder they became. The Guru knows not our worth. His court shall have no splendor without us. Even Guru Nanak's court would have been insipid without the music of Mardana. Guru Angad could endure the ingratitude of the minstrels who owed everything to him, but he could not stomach the disrespect shown to Guru Nanak. He cursed them. You will be cherished no more, you fools. Your children shall wander forlorn, and you will have no means of livelihood. The Guru then commanded his Sikhs to sing in their place. The Sikhs looked at him aghast. How could they possibly sing like trained professional musicians who had spent years honing their craft? The Guru blessed them and encouraged them, asking them to do their best. The Sikhs, no doubt having heard the melodies of the minstrels many times before, began to sing, tentatively at first, and then with increasing confidence. Soon the court of Guru Angad resounded with the beautiful music of devotion again. To this day, many Sikhs who are not professionally trained musicians follow the practice of singing hymns from the Sikh scripture in their homes and at Sikh places of worship. It is said that until Satta and Balwan's rebellion, Gurmit Sangeet or Sikh devotional music was the exclusive preserve of professional musicians. With Guru Angad's inspiration, music entered the lives of ordinary Sikhs and it continues to enrich them to this day. Satta and Balwand, on reaching their homes, continued to sing the Guru's hymns with the object of peeling the Sikhs away from the Guru, but in this they completely failed. No one would go to them or listen to their singing. They found themselves without an income, and they began to regret their impudence. They asked some of the Sikhs to intercede with the Guru on their behalf, but he sternly forbade them to make any representations for men who had shown disrespect to the house of Guru Nanak. He said that he would have the beard and mustache of anyone who spoke in their favor shaved off and his face blackened, and he would then have him mounted on a donkey and paraded in disgrace through the city. Two months after this, Satta and Balwand went to Lahore to visit Pai Ladda, a beloved Sikh of Guru Angad's. His heart melted at the minstrel's plight, and he came up with a novel plan to get them reinstated. He sent Satta and Balwand on before him, and having shaved his head and blackened his face, he mounted a donkey with his face turned towards the tail and went around the city of Kadur, much to the delight of a pack of urchins who thronged behind him laughing. Finally, he arrived in the Guru's presence. The Guru chuckled when he saw him and asked what kind of guise he had assumed. He said he was merely obeying the Guru's order and prayed to him to pardon and reinstate the minstrels. The Sikhs make mistakes, he said, but the Guru can pardon and mend what is broken. Satta and Balwand fearfully entered the Guru's presence to beg forgiveness, but were too ashamed to meet his gaze. Guru Angad placed their instruments in their hands and ordered them to sing the praises of Guru Nanak, who they had insulted in their arrogance. They then composed and sang a ballad in Guru Nanak and Guru Angad's praise, which described the ascension of Guru Angad to the Guru's throne, we have already encountered this ballad in a prior episode of the story of the six. Satta and Balwand came from the same clan of Muslim minstrels that Pai Mardana belonged to. They would collectively be known as the Rababbis.
British writer Edmund Candler, whose writings we have encountered before, visited the Golden Temple in Amritsar, the most prominent place of Sikh worship in the early 1900s. He found it remarkable that the leading minstrels who sang at the Golden Temple were Muslims. All through the day, worshippers flock to the Granth or the Holy Sikh scripture. There is no service from the time of the short reading when the book is borne in on a palanquin an hour before dawn until the evening prayer. Only the musicians are constantly in attendance, singing hymns to the rebek and the lute. These are the Rababis, the descendants of the Mohammedan Fakir, Mardana Mirasi of Merawat, who loved Nanak and set his hymns to music nearly 500 years ago. As Mardana sat by Nanak's side and ministered to him, yet kept his own faith, so his family have made music for the gurus or for their deputy the book these 500 years, and have served the Sikhs and held on to Islam through generations. When to be a Sikh meant to slay a Turk at sight or be slain by him. What were these Mohammedans doing in the shrine, I asked. When I was told that they were the children of Mardana, I understood. Candler had been surprised because in the 18th century in particular, Sikhs had been at odds with their Muslim rulers. Many deadly armed encounters ensued between them and the Sikhs and the Turks, as Candler refers to the Muslims as, often thirsted for each other's blood. The sight of Muslim minstrels singing at the Sikhs' most prominent place of worship must have been an incongruous one for sure. is a well-known story and is often cited as a cautionary tale about the follies of arrogance. Many of the stories that have been preserved through largely an oral tradition might be apocryphal and need to be treated as such. As a practicing Sikh, the notion of a guru whose creed was above all an abiding love of all humanity Cursing his errant followers is a disconcerting one and hard for me to accept. Yet, I cannot but feel a chill when I think about the Rababis and their eventual fate. When Candler visited the Golden Temple, he found the descendants of Satta and Balwand to be thriving. They were highly respected minstrels and Sikhs thronged to hear them to sing the praises of the Almighty and the Gurus. However, tumultuous events were to unfold in a few decades. India was partitioned in 1947 as British rule over the subcontinent was ending. Partition resulted in the birth of Muslim-majority Pakistan and Hindu-majority India. The Sikhs, traditionally closer to the Hindus, threw their lot in with India. Brutal bloodletting followed as there was a mass exodus of Hindus and Sikhs from Pakistan and Muslims from India. Genocide and ethnic cleansing created a toxic environment of mistrust and communal hatred. descendants of Satta and Bulwand were in a bind. They were Muslims, surrounded by Hindus and Sikhs, 
who had turned hostile overnight. The only occupation they had ever known was singing, and their patrons were exclusively Sikh. But Pakistan beckoned as a safe haven for Muslims. Their Babis left en masse, and the descendants of Satta and Balwand sang at Sikh Gurdwaras no more. Of course, there were no Sikhs left in Pakistan, which meant that there was no interest in the rich musical heritage of their Babis. Their art withered and died. Within a generation, the rich musical legacy of Pai Mardana was gone as the descendants of Satta and Balwand slipped into abject poverty, struggling to survive in poorly paid menial occupations. Did they pay for the arrogance of their forebears? Or was it just unkind destiny? Who can tell? The only thing that is certain is that the Sikhs lost a precious part of their legacy forever. Guru Angad was to serve the Sikhs as Guru for many more years. His great quality as Guru Nanak's disciple had been unquestioning obedience, which he inspired in his followers as well. He presided over his flock with gentleness, always emphasizing the virtues of kindness and forgiveness. The Sikh community continued to flourish and grow as more and more flocked to the Guru's court, but Guru Angad remained to the end a most humble man. Following Guru Nanak's example, he earned his living through honest labor, twisting rope and string and selling it. A very important contribution of Guru Angad's was the development of the Gurmukhi script. Prior to his time, the compositions of saints and holy men were for the most part written in Sanskrit letters or the Devanagari script. Guru Angad decreed that the compositions of Guru Nanak were worthy of a special script and adopted and modified a new alphabet naming it Gurmukhi. It was simpler than Devanagari, employing 35 characters rather than 52. Max Arthur McAuliffe, author of The Sikh Religion, the first comprehensive work on Sikhism in English, writes, The Gurmukhi character was well calculated to make its readers part with Hindu compositions written in Sanskrit. The Gurmukhi sa is the Sanskrit ma, the Gurmukhi ma is the Sanskrit bha, the Gurmukhi va is the Sanskrit da, and the Gurmukhi dha, the Sanskrit pa. When, therefore, one has become accustomed to the use of the Gurmukhi letters, a special and separate effort is required to read Sanskrit, however much one may have been previously acquainted with it. The result has been that in most cases, Gurmukhi scholars have parted company with Sanskrit and the multitudinous Brahminical works in that recondite language. The Guru was quietly and systematically breaking the hold of Brahmins over the common people. The Brahmins' exclusive knowledge of Sanskrit and the ancient texts had placed them in a position of great power, a position that they exploited and abused unabashedly. Gurmukhi, in a certain sense, became the script of the common people and made the writings of Guru Nanak accessible to them. The Persian writer Mohsin Fani wrote the Dbistan e Mazab, or the School of Religions, a treatise in various faiths, several decades after the times of Guru Angad. According to him, the Sikhs do not recite the mantras of the Hindus. They do not venerate their temples or idols, nor do they esteem their avatars. The Sanskrit language, which according to the Hindus is the language of the gods, is not held in such great estimation by the Sikhs. Slowly but surely, 
the faith of Guru Nanak was starting to acquire its own unique identity. Just like Guru Angad, subsequent Gurus too would leave their imprint on this identity through their unique contributions. The Sikh historians Teja Singh and Ganda Singh write, the chief contribution made by Guru Angad to the development of the Sikh movement was that he gave definiteness and distinction to the general ideals laid down by Guru Nanak. A nucleus of the Sikh scripture began to be formed, giving a clear direction to the faith of the disciples. It reminded Sikhs of their duty to the Guru and constantly kept alive in their minds the notion that they were distinct from the mass of Hindus. village of Basarka, not far from modern-day Amritsar, lived a man named Tej Bhan and his wife Bakhtpur. They had four sons, the elder of whom was named Amardas. He was born in 1479, a mere decade after the birth of Guru Nanak. Amardas lived partly by agriculture and partly by trade. At the age of 23, he was married to Mansa Devi. They had two sons, Mori and Mohan, and two daughters, Dani and Pani. Amardas was a zealous follower of the Hindu god Vishnu and used to fast on every 11th day. Despite his devotion to the Hindu god, he had been searching far and wide for a suitable teacher, for he feared that his life was passing in vain. During one of his pilgrimages to the Ganga River, he met a monk with whom he became so intimate and friendly that they cooked and ate together. The monk, on seeing Amardas's merits, asked him what guru had taught him such piety and wisdom. Amardas sadly replied that he had no guru. On hearing this, the monk said, Alas, I have committed a great sin. I have eaten from the hands of a man who has no master. My ablutions in the Ganga are now of no avail. I can only be purified by returning to the river to bathe again. Thus lamenting, the monk departed. Amardas was dismayed and decided to redouble his efforts to find a master. One morning before daybreak, while engaged in his reflections on the upper parapet of his house, he heard a melodious voice chanting. The voice came from his brother's house, where lived Bibi Amro, Guru Angad's daughter, recently married to Amardas's nephew. It was Bibi Amro's practice to rise before dawn, bathe, and recite the japji and other hymns of Guru Nanak before she started to churn fresh butter for the family. On hearing her chanting, Amardas became deeply absorbed in devotion. He could not help asking Bibi Amro to sing the hymn again and inquired where she had learned it from. She readily agreed and added that she had learned the composition from her father, Guru Angad. Amardas committed the hymn to memory and prevailed upon her to take him to see the Guru. The connection was immediate. Amardas sensed that he had found his master and decided to stay with him to serve him. He gave up his adoration of Vishnu and abandoned his former devotions and rituals. Finally, he felt, his restless heart was at peace. One day a man called Gobind came to Khadur to make a representation to the Guru. He had been involved in a lawsuit with his relations and vowed that if he ever were victorious, he would found a new town in the honor of the Guru. Fortune having favored him, he began to build the town and an open plot of land on the bank of the river Beas, 
one of the great rivers that flows through the Punjab. Having received from astrologers an auspicious time for the start of the work, he laid out the boundaries, employed masons, and began to build. However, what was done by day was in some mysterious way undone by night. It was supposed that this might be the work of demons, but in all likelihood his relatives were behind the mischief. Gobind prayed to the Guru to have the town completed. Upon hearing his request, Guru Angad sent Amardas his walking stick and deputed him to help with the construction of the town. Amardas prayed to God for assistance and the work was completed with no further obstruction. The city came to be known as Goindwal. Gobind went back to Kadur to offer his thanks to the Guru for sending Amardas to help him and begged the Guru to live in the newly founded town. The Guru did not wish to leave his home in Kadur and instead commanded Amardas to live in Goindwal by night and serve him in Kadur by day. Amardas brought his family from Basarka and permanently settled in Goindwal, becoming the established leader of the Sikhs there and the Guru's representative in the town. Amardas was now an old man, but he was tireless in his devotion to Guru Angad. He would rise at Goindwal before daybreak, proceed to the river Bias, and take water for the Guru to bathe with to Kadur. After morning prayers in Kadur, he would fetch water again for the Guru's kitchen, scrub the cooking utensils, and gather firewood in the forest. Every evening after prayers, he would personally attend to the Guru, and after putting him to bed, he would return to Goindwal. There lived in Kadur an ascetic named Tapa, or the Pentinent. He was constantly engaged in elaborate physical exertions and showy acts of devotion, which garnered for him a following among some of the locals. He harbored great jealousy in his heart for Guru Angad, who he mocked as a false holy man because he lived with his family. He could not bear to see the throngs of the faithful flocking to Guru Angad's presence. It happened one year that there was a great drought in the land. Food became scarce and expensive, and the people were greatly distressed. Cattle, too, suffered severely and died in large numbers, for all the tanks were dry and no rain would fall. A delegation of villagers from Kadur begged the Tapa for help. I am a monk, he thundered, who has taken the vow of chastity. And yet you follow Guru Angad, a family man? Go to him instead and ask him to produce rain. Quaking at his anger, the delegation humbly replied, The Guru asks none to worship him. He cares not for the high and the mighty. Every offering made to him is sent into his kitchen, where the poor, the indigent, and the traveler, and the stranger are all fed. We admire him, but we have no power to compel him to do anything. The Tapa haughtily replied, if you expel him from the city, I will send you rain in less than 24 hours. If, on the other hand, you allow him to remain, let him cause rain to fall. On hearing this, the villagers lost their heads, went to the Guru, and requested him to send rain. The Guru said, Be satisfied with God's will. God has no partner in his designs, and none can influence him. Very dissatisfied, the villagers delivered the tapa's message to the Guru. The Guru replied that if they thought they would benefit from his leaving, he would willingly leave the town. The cultivators who lived in the neighborhood were warned not to receive Guru Angad. For this reason, he had to cross seven villages in succession until he at last found refuge. 
When Amardas arrived in Kadur the next morning, he found the Guru's house empty. On asking the villagers, he learned of his master's exile. The furious Amardas told them that they were fools who had taken leave of their senses. Can a lamp ever be substituted for the sun? How could you have listened to the tapa and expelled the Guru? The people gathered round the tapa and demanded rain. The tapa replied, Have patience, rain shall fall immediately. He then made every form of incantation but without success. Amardas explained to the people that other than God, nobody had the power to send rain, and they had been foolish in letting a hypocrite turn them against the guru who had always been a paragon of kindness. If the tapa could ever cause rain to fall, why would he need to beg from house to house for his next meal? Upon hearing this, the people were convinced of the tapa's hypocrisy and greatly ashamed of their treatment of the guru. They turned on the tapa and punished him, so that other evil men might not be tempted to follow his example. After that, they went in a body to Guru Angad to beg his forgiveness. When Guru Angad heard of the tapa's punishment, he was saddened, and he addressed Amardas, You have not obtained the fruits of companionship with me, which are peace, forbearance, and forgiveness. You are incapable of enduring things difficult to be endured. All that you accomplished was pleasing the rabble. On hearing this, Amardas threw himself at the Guru's feet and humbly sought his pardon. Amardas did not know it at that time, but he was being groomed. Angad had two sons, Dasu and Datu, who were dear to him, but he was very pleased with Amardas's service. It was the Guru's custom to distribute robes of honor every six months to deserving Sikhs. When Amardas received his, he would wear it like a turban on his head and never take it off, and when he received another, he would tie it on top of the last one presented. In this way, he carried twelve turbans on his head. On seeing him bear such a weight, many Sikhs laughed and said that Amardas was in his dotage. Amardas did not care, for his faith and devotion just kept on growing. He had no desire for wealth or spiritual power. His thoughts were ever absorbed in God and in the Guru's service. One day, Guru Angad said, that his life was drawing to a close, and he must depart. In reply to his disconsolate Sikhs, he said, The saints of the true Guru are of the nature of clouds. They assume a body for the benefit of the world and confer benefits on men. The body, which is merely a storehouse of corn, shall perish. As a rich man casts aside his old clothes and puts on new ones, so do the saints of the true Guru put away their crumbling bodies and take new vesture for their souls. The Guru's disciples listened to this discourse with rapt attention and were consoled. The Guru was in deep thought, pondering his succession and the future of his flock. It was a dark, moonless, and rainy night. Cold winds blew, lightning flashed, and all the six of Kadur were glad to shelter in their homes. Three hours before daybreak, the Guru called out that he needed water for his bath. He called out again, but nobody answered. 
The third time he shook one of his sons awake and told him to go fetch water. When the son showed no sign of obeying, Amardas rose to his feet. The guru objected, saying that Amardas was now too old for such service, but Amardas was already out of the door, a pitcher on his head. On arriving at the river Beas, he filled his vessel and, chanting the japji, made his way back to his master's home. On the outskirts of Kadur was a colony of weavers. They had dug holes in the ground into which they put their feet while sitting at their looms. Into one of these holes Amardas fell, striking his foot against a wooden peg. Despite his fall, he still succeeded in saving the pitcher of water on his head. On hearing the noise and uproar, the weavers awoke. Cries of thief, thief resounded through the colony. One of the weavers' wives heard Amardas chanting the japji and she burst out laughing. That's no thief, she said scornfully. That is Amru the homeless. Amru whose beard has grown gray. Amru who has taken leave of his senses. Having abandoned his sons and daughters, his house and hearth, his commerce and his dealings, he now has no occupation and wanders from door to door. Other people go to sleep at night, but Amru doesn't rest even then. Single-handedly, he does the work of twenty men, bringing water from the river, bringing firewood from the forest. What sort of guru does he serve? One who abuses an old man in this manner? Amardas could not endure the disrespect shown to his guru, and he dismissed the woman as touched. He took his vessel of water and helped the guru with his bath. The weaver's wife, a clever, sharp-witted woman, suddenly went mad. No physician could cure her, and in desperation they took her to Guru Angad and recounted the whole sorry tale of the stormy night and her insult. The Guru patiently heard them out, and then he spoke. Amardas has done great service, and his toil is blessed. His words prove true. Wealth and spiritual power wait upon him. The peg against which he struck his foot shall turn green again, and the weaver's wife shall recover. He who serves Amardas shall obtain whatever his heart desires. The woman mocked him as lowly and homeless, but Amardas, he shall be the sanctuary of the homeless. He shall be the honor of the unhonored. He shall be the strength of the strengthless. He shall be the supporter of the unsupported and he shall be the shelter of the unsheltered. He will truly become the protector of the unprotected. After that, the Guru sent for five copper coins and a coconut. He asked Amardas to bathe and put on new clothes, and then he installed him in his own seat. He placed the five copper coins and the coconut before him and saluted him. By Buddha affixed to his forehead the saffron tilak, or mark of guruship. Thus was Guru Amarda solemnly appointed Guru Angad's successor. Amangat sent for his two sons, Dasu and Datu. He told them that the office of the Guru was reward for humility, devotion, and service. Guru Amardas had proven himself worthy. He then ordered his sons 
to bow before the next guru. They did so with great reluctance, for they had always looked upon Guru Amar Das as a lowly domestic servant. Guru Angad then summoned all of his Sikhs and the notables of Kadur and told them that he was going to depart and that he had appointed Guru Amar Das to be his successor to the throne of Guru Nanak. He commanded Guru Amar Das not to live in Kadur, but in Goindval, doing exactly what Guru Nanak had done at the time of his passing. A great feast was organized for the Sikhs, in which Guru Angad reminded them of the tenets and principles of their faith. The following day he rose before dawn, bathed, and prepared for his final journey. He then chanted the Japji, summoned all of his family and consoled them, enjoining them to accept God's will. He then fixed his thoughts on his master, Guru Nanak, and with the name of the Almighty on his lips, he left the world. The humblest of Guru Nanak's disciples had served as Guru for twelve years, six months, and nine days. Guru Angad's sons and the six grew sad, but Bhai Buddha asked them to repeat God's name rather than lamenting. They began to sing the Guru's hymns to the accompaniment of rabobs, mridangs, and trumpets. They erected a splendid byre in which they placed the body of the deceased Guru and recited the Sohila of Guru Nanak. After this, they placed the Guru's remains on a pyre of sandalwood and cremated him according to his wishes. Right by the tree, which had sprung out of the peg on which Guru Amardas had struck his foot, the torch had been passed again. Guru Amardas was now the third Guru of the six. Guru Nanak's flock was thriving. A third great center of Sikhism had sprung up in Goindval, in addition to Kartarpur and Kadur, six were growing in numbers as more and more were attracted to the creed of Guru Nanak, which promised equality, dignity, love, and peace to all. Of course there would be challenges ahead, but for the moment, the sapling that Guru Nanak had planted and Guru Angad had so lovingly nurtured was in the safe hands of Guru Amardas. The Story of the Sikhs is produced by Almast Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh. This episode also features traditional Sikh hymns by the late Bibi Jaswant Kar and the late Gyani Diyal Singh. Bibi Jaswant Kar was one of the last links to the grand Rubabi tradition of Sikh music, having studied with Bai Taba, a legendary Rubabi musician, who also left Amritsar for Pakistan after the partition of India. She was recorded live by Sarpreet Singh in 2009, a few months before she passed away. Bibi Jaswant Kar was 90 when this recording was made. Gyani Diyal Singh started his career playing the Dilruba at the Harmandar Sahib or the Golden Temple. He spent several years working with Bai Taba to document the ancient melodies of the Rababis. The effort resulted in the publishing of Gurbani Sangeet, the first effort in modern times to document the sacred music of the Sikhs. Gyani Diyal Singh was recorded by Sarpreet Singh during a visit to Boston. The composition he sang was passed on to him by Bai Taba and was often sung by Bai Lal, one of the last great Muslim Rababis to sing at the Harmandar Sahib. The episode also includes a rendition of a hymn by the late Ustad Ghulam Hussein Shagan, the son of Bai Lal. The instrumental recording featured in this episode is Raga Yaman by Indian classical mandolinist Gargandeep Singh. <laughs>
The Story of the Sikhs is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of the poem Kultar's Mime, which was adapted for the stage and tells the story of the massacre of the Sikhs in Delhi in 1984. The Story of the Sikhs is sponsored by the Chardli Kala Foundation, a nonprofit that helps young Sikhs in the diaspora understand the values of their faith. Serial entrepreneur Dr. Ratinder Paul Singh Ahuja and the Sawney Family Foundation. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are two things you can do to help us reach more listeners. Please subscribe to the podcast and be sure to write a short review. I am co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong. In the next episode, we will learn how Guru Amardas nurtured and enhanced the legacy of his guru. We will also learn about humble Bai Jeta, who would be remembered as Guru Ramdas, the fourth guru of the Sikhs, and a prophecy that would forever alter the institution of the guruship. Thank you for joining us.